That being said, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. Hear the word of the Lord. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. and They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Let's pray to God. Father, we ask for your help as we read your word. Uh, Lord, we do ask that you would draw near to us by your Holy Spirit, giving us eyes to see uh, what is to be perceived, and giving us ears to hear and to receive by faith the, the very promises of God as well as uh, uh, the commands of God, that we too would receive them with reverence and love, and that we would look to live for your glory, and that we would look to see how the gospel be can be demonstrated in our lives through our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, during his reign, King Frederick William III of Prussia uh, found himself in a predicament. He was in the midst of a war. He was trying to rebuild his nation, and all of a sudden, they ran out of funds altogether. And so rather than seeing the country capitulate to their enemies and to basically shirk uh, all of the responsibilities of their country, he decided uh, to do something really in, ingenious. He, he asked all the women in the country to give over their gold freely to the state. That sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? And in return, uh, he would offer them a, an iron cross made out of iron uh, to represent uh, the gift of the state to the people who had made such a sacrifice. And it got to the point where it became so popular in the country that very few women wore any gold jewelry anymore. In fact, it became out of fashion to wear gold. Instead, everyone was wearing iron crosses. And I think you can see sort of where I'm going with this here. But basically, it got to the point where uh, it became a symbol of their love for the king and a sacrifice for their homeland for their kingdom, if you will, uh, to be able to give this gold unto, unto the king and to receive the Iron Cross. So that's what began what became known as the Order of the Iron Cross, and later the military would use that same um, imagery, if you will, to, to suggest honor and bravery in battle, your willingness to give something to the state. Well, as we continue to study the concept of faith in Christ and his kingdom, Certainly we see uh, sort of that obvious correlation of how faith is meant to be demonstrated both in our love and our loyalty and our sacrifice and our giving. But it's, it's demonstrated in a, a wide variety of ways uh, through each person that God has called. For instance, uh, unlike Noah, not everyone is called to build an ark. So if you walked away after the first couple weeks of going through this, this chapter 11, if you started building a ship, that's probably not what God intended for you. Uh, in the same way, uh, God doesn't call everyone, like Abraham, to leave his country and go live in a foreign land. Certainly, he doesn't call all of us to go and attempt to sacrifice our own son. Uh, that's not the case. But what, what all of these 
men and, and their families have in common is that they all were called to demonstrate their faith in God's promises through their obedience, through their loyalty, through their love, through their sacrifices. And, and ultimately, we see that all of them did this, but what's motivating these people to obey God's commands in this way? There's, there's some pretty heavy commands that he was giving them. What motivates them to do this and to give up their lives, their livelihood, and even their sons, if need be, for the sake of God's glory? That's one of the questions we're going to seek to answer in the text this morning as we look at the life of Moses and how his faith led him to do such great things. I'll have you notice that in uh, our passage here in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning of verse 23, um, there's more emphasis on the life of Moses than even on the life of Abraham, even though Abraham's section is longer because it talks about also the faith of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Uh, there's actually more emphasis on Moses than there is even Abraham. And the reason for that, if you remember, the church that he is writing to, the author of Hebrews is, is giving this epistle to, are, are basically a bunch of Jewish believers who had come to faith in Christ that are beginning to waver in their faith and are tempted to turn back because of the persecution that's just beginning in their particular realm, probably somewhere in Italy. And uh, he's basically writing to them to help them to understand that they're wanting to turn from Christ back to Moses, but he's showing them even Moses himself, the very lawgiver himself, lived his entire life based upon faith in Christ. So if you're going to turn back to Moses... You might as well continue to seek Christ because that's what Moses did. That's his point here. And I hope that that's going to be seen very clearly as we continue to look at the text closely. But this morning, based upon the life of Moses, I want to share with you three more evidences of faith, if you will, based upon his life, and that should be seen in the life of every believer. And here are those three evidences for us this morning. First, a true and genuine faith always fears God more than men. That's number one. Number two, that same faith identifies more with Christ and his church than any other individual or any other institution. And then three, that same faith also chooses suffering over sin and reproach over riches. Uh, I hope we'll be able to see that again clearly here. But let's begin with number one. Faith is clearly evidenced when a believer fears God more than men. If there was one man who was feared during this time more than any other would have been the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He had more power, more sway than any other man living at this time. And we can see that as the Jews continue to grow in number, he felt threatened in his power and in, in his own realm and so if you remember, after Joseph died and this new pharaoh came to power, the first thing he wanted to do was subjugate all the Israelites to enslave them in order to keep them under his thumb, to keep them under his control. But the more he oppressed them, the more they continued to grow and to thrive and to succeed and being blessed in numerous ways. And so that's when, if you remember, he commanded the Hebrew midwives to kill the, the, firstborn, the, the, the firstborn sons of every Hebrew woman in order to obey the king. And, and we're not told in this passage in Hebrews 11, but we're given uh, the evidence of their faith because it said they disobeyed the king and did not kill uh, the, the, the Hebrew boys. Even though the, the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention theirs, he does mention the faith of, of Moses' parents 
who also disobeyed this same king. For after the rebellion of the Hebrew midwives, then his second command was to all of those under his authority, including the Egyptians and the Israelites, that the minute a Hebrew boy was born, that they were to toss him into the Nile River and to snuff out his life. And we see again in verse 23 of our text, we see, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So in the same way that the Hebrew midwives feared the Lord more than men, we see that Moses' parents also feared the Lord more than the king's edict. And we, and we see that because even their own life was at stake. If they were found having protected their son, then they too would have been put to death. So they put their own lives in their own hands by fearing God more than men. But I don't like the way the ESV reads in this regard and, and how it's translated. It gives the reasons for their disobedience in this way. It says, because they saw that the child was beautiful, they hid their son for three months. If that's the case, I shudder to think what would happen if the child was ugly. And you say, oh, there's no such thing as ugly. There are ugly kids. I was one of them. In fact, I don't know if you've known this. I may have shared this in passing once before, but when I was born, I was born with a hemangioma on my eye, which is basically a birthmark full of red blood vessels that continues to grow and eventually will take over your whole face unless it's cut out. So I had this big blood vessel on my face when I was born. I would hesitate to think that if I were born to Hebrew parents, they would have tossed me in the river so quickly. That's not what this text is saying. Uh, rather, the word that's used in the Hebrew that Moses himself writes as he's recounting his own birth in the book of Exodus chapter 2 is the word tov, T-O-V. It's a very common word that's used and translated in a lot of different ways. It can be translated as something pleasant or agreeable, beautiful or good. Uh, what I think the author of Hebrews, as well as what Moses is intending on communicating through this choice of word is not the sense of beautiful in the sense of how this person looks on the outside, uh, but rather it's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 again and again after everything that God creates. He says, and it was good, right? So in other words, what's being compared here is not an ugly child to a beautiful child, but rather the Pharaoh's edict saying that this child is evil and ought to be killed compared to God's view of that same child, that that child is good. You see the difference? It's the same manner that, you know, in our culture today in which abortion is so prevalent that the average worldly person thinks that that child is not good, worthless, whereas God says the child is good. And because they believed God's word, they hid Moses, not because he was an especially beautiful child. Well, in the same way, Moses' parents stood up to the Pharaoh's edict. If you remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego also stood up to the edict of King Nebuchadnezzar when he told them all to bow down to the golden image. Again, we see another example of someone fearing God more than men. The same way that, if you remember the apostles Peter and John, after they explicitly told not to teach and preach anymore in the name of Jesus Christ, they basically said, we don't care. We're going to ignore that command, and we're going to preach anyway because they felt more fear for the Lord than they did for men. 
Well, in the same way, when we get to Moses' life itself, verse 27, uh, Moses comes of age. He says, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, in that particular case, I want you to notice that uh, what he's saying here is, uh, is not unusual. Uh, rather, it, it, he's saying Moses feared the invisible God more than he feared the visage of the king itself. He could see by faith God's pleasure more than he could see the anger of the king. And so as a result, he fled from the Pharaoh's presence. Even though the Pharaoh had sought to kill him on a number of occasions, he knew that his life was endangered, and yet he still feared God more than he feared the king. Um, So when the Lord tells him uh, later on that the Lord himself is going to come through Egypt and slaughter the firstborn son of every child in the land based upon the sin and what sin deserves with the wages of death, the wages of sin or death. Uh, immediately, unlike when Moses did not listen to the edict of the Pharaoh, he immediately listened to the edict of the Lord and did exactly what he commanded him to do, and that's when he slaughtered the the, the Passover lamb and sprinkled the blood upon the doorpost and the lentils of the door because he believed God's word and feared God more than he feared man. And that's exactly what Jesus says to us in Matthew 10, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Or consider what David says in Psalm 27. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? If you fear the Lord, you don't fear men. Now, how encouraging those words would have been to the recipients of this letter to the Hebrews because they're facing the same predicament. All of a sudden, some sort of persecution is beginning to happen in their particular locale, and the king is beginning to make them afraid. Are they going to fear God more? Are they going to fear the king more? And so what he's doing is he's pointing them back to Moses and showing Moses had the same struggle. He had to face the the fear of the world versus the fear of God, and and obviously he persevered in his faith in Christ. And uh, we see that very clearly. Of course, it's easy for me to say that from a pulpit at this particular moment in our country because I don't think anyone here right at this moment is afraid of the state coming and taking your life, at least not right now. The times are changing, as we know. But there, there are many places around the world in which someone in my position immediately is thrown in jail for saying in any possible way that you should obey God before you obey the state. You know that, right? This is happening. It's very prevalent around the world. We're in a very unusual situation, similar to the Egyptians throwing their sons into um, the Nile River. Uh, for the last 35 years, it's just been the last couple that this has changed, but the family planning agents in China would come to your house once you had more than one child and would inject poison into the skull of your newborn baby to ensure population control. Oh, but you say, well, you know, I just would go seek to hide the baby. Well, that's what a lot of women tried to do at first. But what would happen is their 
family, her family would be fined such a great amount, five times the normal yearly salary that that family could earn uh, in that given time. And if they couldn't pay it immediately, they were thrown in jail. So as a result, many women ended up aborting their own babies so as not to be fined, so as not to be found pregnant. So they, they killed their own babies so that the state wouldn't hurt them anymore. Now, if, if they couldn't pay the fine, they'd lose their jobs, they'd lose their home, they'd lose everything. And if for any reason the woman went into hiding, any relative of hers was then thrown in jail as well to snuff her out, to make sure that she was uh, flushed out at least. Uh, so we can see this is a, not an ancient practice. It, it was happening here not too long ago. In the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you remember, uh, were refusing to bow down to this golden idol. Same country, China, 2019, pastor. Similar to me, just normal guy. His name's Wang Yi. Uh, was in prison for nine years, so he's still in jail merely for criticizing the Chinese government and requiring its citizens to engage in Caesar-like worship of Xi Jinping. He basically critiqued him, and now he's in jail for nine years. And as a result, immediately all of his rights as a citizen were stripped, all of his assets were frozen, and now his family has nothing. And he's in jail for another six, seven years, unless something happens otherwise. As for those who speak in the name of Christ, in other places around the world, there are many state governments that have declared anyone like me or you to be an enemy of the state if we speak out in the name of Christ. Right now, there are two individuals, if you haven't been paying attention to the news, there are two individuals in Finland that are being accused of hate crimes and are awaiting their verdict. Uh, one of them is a bishop, and the other one is actually the interior minister of Finland. It's a woman who basically texted a portion of Scripture against homosexuality. In other words, she's quoting the Bible. And now she's basically being accused of hate crimes, and they're trying to fine her commensurate to her salary. So in other words, they're trying to hurt her where it counts the most. But they're purposely not wanting to throw them in jail so that they can continue to build up more and more against the Christian population and to snuff it out. That's going on right now. Well, of course, you know what happens in, in, in many Muslim countries where Christianity is not a favored religion. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, the law criminalizes anyone who challenges either directly or indirectly the religion or the justice of the king. So if you speak out in any way against what the king believes, that's worthy of imprisonment. If you try to proselytize as a Christian believer in the country of Saudi Arabia, you're immediately in prison immediately. And if you're converted from Islam to Christianity, it's worthy of death. Clearly, there is a choice that one has to make. Am I going to be afraid of the king, or am I going to fear the Lord more? It's always that choice that takes place. Every generation, it's like that, though. Uh, different places around the world, we see that the Christians have continued to try to stand up for what is right. Sometimes that means standing up for the weak against the state itself, whether that's uh, Christians standing up against the Nazis and protecting the Jews, or whether that's even abolitionists standing up to protect 
slaves, runaway slaves from those in the South. The, the song that we just sang, uh, that we just listened to, Go Down Moses, I, I think many of you know that it's an old Negro spiritual, but part of the calling is actually a calling to people like Moses, abolitionists, if you will, to go down, way down to the South and to stand up for those who have no rights and to bring them to freedom, which basically is a call to go against the state out of fear of the Lord in order to bring freedom to the slaves. But to do such things, as you know, you'd have to believe in a higher law than the law of the state, which in itself is an offense against the state. And so to be a Christian, to walk by faith, there's always this sense, there's always this tension between whose law are you going to follow the most. It's only by faith that a believer can have the courage to do what is right in God's eyes. What he says is good when the state says it's evil. And now, as you know, in our country, it's more the other way around. It's what the state is saying is good and we're saying is evil. That's what's going to get us in trouble more than likely. But the question is, who are you going to fear? Are you going to fear God or are you going to fear the state? That's the first aspect of faith. I think it's clearly seen in this passage. Secondly, faith is also evidenced when a believer identifies more with Christ in his church than any other person or institution. If you look in the text at verses 24 and 25, the author of Hebrews says this, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Now keep in mind, even though Moses was a Jew by birth, he had pretty much effectively lived as an Egyptian since the time he was really very little, when he was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And so he lived in a palace. He received a, a, a top-notch education, was on the fast track to power and authority and, and to, to receive uh, quite a bit of things, living a life of ease and, and also living a life in safety from persecution because he didn't identify himself with the people of God, at least not at first. And so, at for, so what's happening here, there's a transition somehow, maybe even through his own mother's influence when she was uh, raising him as a child at the early age, he knew who he was. He knew whose he was, and he was beginning to identify with, with Christ and with the people of God. Same way we see that history unfold in the life of Esther, if you remember. At first, Esther is keeping her identity anonymous when she is brought into the king's harem, but eventually it gets to the point where we hear of Haman's plot against the Jews, and we see Mordecai challenging her to stand up for her own people. At first she's afraid, but eventually, after sensing that uh, conviction of the Spirit, she eventually is able to go up to the king, even though it's unlawful to do that unannounced, and she says, if I perish, I perish. For she identifies herself with God and, and, and his people. We see the same thing later on in the New Testament. We see Nicodemus as a Pharisee. If you remember, at first, he's meeting with Jesus at night because he doesn't want to be seen having a personal conversation with Christ. If he is, then immediately as a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, he's going to lose his position. So he's hiding his identity. But later on, if you remember, after Jesus is crucified, and they have to take his body down from the cross. Nicodemus, along with Joseph of Arimathea, who are both members of the Sanhedrin, they both come out and willingly identify themselves as followers of Christ, respecting and preserving the, the body until it's brought into the tomb. 
unlike Peter, when asked if he was a companion of Jesus on the night of his betrayal, saying three times, I don't know the man, we now see two Pharisees who have much greater danger involved than even these disciples who are saying, not only do I know the man, I'm his follower. It takes great faith for a Pharisee to turn into a follower of Christ. In fact, the word that's used in the Greek to signify Moses' refusal to be identified as a son of Pharaoh's daughter is the exact same word that's used in the Greek to refer to Peter's denial of Christ, saying, I don't know him. In the same way, Moses is saying, I don't know her. I, I, I'm no longer identified with her at all, but rather I'm going to identify myself with the reproach of Christ. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews says in verse 26. He says that he considered the reproach of Christ that was his reason for leaving the palace in Egypt and becoming one with the people of God. Now, uh, it, it's very important that we understand this concept because he's not merely saying he's, he's identifying himself with the disgrace of the Jews, but rather he's identifying himself with the disgrace of Christ. Did you catch that? He's talking about his faith in Christ here. And, and, and the, the, the key to understanding this is even Moses' language, even the New Testament when we use the word church, we often don't have any concept of where this word comes from. But it's the same word that's used again and again in the Old Testament in the Greek version of the Septuagint. Moses continually calls the people of God the church, the congregation of Israel. He's identifying himself with the church, which is the body of Christ. How can someone possibly identify themselves with Christ the head if he doesn't also identify himself with the body of Christ. That's what he's doing. By, by identifying himself with the Israelites, he's identifying himself with Christ. Do you see that? So it's the reproach of Israel that's in common with the reproach of Christ. That's why it's referred to in that way, to show us that it's very important that we have to identify ourselves with the church and not just with Christ. Not just saying, well, I have a personal faith in Christ, but I have nothing to do with the church that's anathema to the Scripture. It's never that way. It's always Christ and His church. What's happening at this time, again, in the letter to the Hebrews, is it's written, many began to neglect meeting together with the church out of fear of persecution. They no longer wanted to identify themselves with the church. They wanted to say, well, maybe I have my own faith, or maybe I'm going to turn back and become one with the Israelites. But to disregard the church and not associate with the church is not associating with Christ because Christ died for the church. He says that very explicitly. Ephesians 3.21, uh, notice how Paul is saying, to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus in every generation. Even if we think very little of the church, even if the, the church seems to be weak in our eyes, even if the world despises her in every possible way, God has glorious intentions for the church in every generation for us to not identify ourselves with the glorious church of God. Basically, the writer of Hebrews is saying you're not identifying yourself with Christ. You walk away from the church, you walk away from Christ. And you know that because the church is where you make that public profession of faith in Christ. That's where you're boasting in the Lord and saying, I'm a sinner, I am saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. It's here in this context 
that we admit that regularly. And we come before the Lord's table in the same way that Moses had the Israelites sprinkle the blood on the doorpost and the lentils of, of, of their homes. In the same way, we take up the cup of the blood of Christ once again and identify ourselves as those who are saved only through the blood of Christ. If you're not a part of that, you're not identifying yourselves with the church in that way, how can you identify yourself with Christ? It's, it's never meant to be that way. It's interesting, just a couple years ago here at this church, there was a, there was a man who had come for a few weeks and was very excited to join with us and already was uh, promising me that he was going to give a good amount of money to the church. Don't do that, by the way. That doesn't make me think any, any more highly of you, especially if you're trying to manipulate me in some sort of way. Um, but he met with me in my office and wanted to tell me all of his grand schemes of the money he wanted to give to the church and et cetera, et cetera. And eventually he told me that he was a 33, 33rd degree Mason. And I had to explain to him that in our denomination, especially, uh, we, we've already written about this concept. We don't, we don't like the concept of secret societies, especially those that do idolatrous practices in what's called a temple, taking sacred, secret vows in addition to what you would take in a normal church and having a brotherhood outside of the church that you're more associated with than the church. And I asked him a very simple question. I just said, well, knowing where we stand on this, you have an option. You can either forsake the Freemasonry or you can forsake the church. And sadly, very similar to the guy, the young rich young ruler, when Jesus gave him a similar scenario, he walked away and said, I'd rather associate with my brothers in Freemasons than I would with the church. There's always going to be that concept, whether it's through a family, whether it's through your friendships, whether it's through an institution of any kind, whether through an obedience to the state versus an obedience unto Christ, there's always a decision that has to be made. Where is your primary loyalty? Who is your family? It's always going to come down to Christ and the church or something else. To forsake the church, you've forsaken Christ. Then third, faith also chooses suffering over sin and reproach over riches. It wasn't merely the fact that Moses chose the Lord over the gods of Egypt or that he chose Israel over the Egyptians. He chose suffering over sin, and, and that's a very unusual choice. Notice in verse 25, the author of Hebrews says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, we're not told of any particular sin in the book of Exodus of what, what was the sin that he was committing at the time he was living under Pharaoh's roof. But we can surmise what a young man with that amount of power and money uh, would seek to pursue. Uh, basically, he had all sorts of means at his disposal. He could pretty much do whatever his heart desired. Uh, so you can imagine, uh, not unlike Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, with the same amount of power and wealth, if not much more, Moses would have tested himself with pleasure, seeking to cheer his body with women and wine and everything else in between. And at some point, he begins to, in the midst of his folly, lay hold of something 
of wisdom through faith in Christ. He begins to see the vanity of all his pursuits and realizes it hasn't satisfied him. He has all the riches in the world, and he's still empty. It's not satisfying his soul. As the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, whatever gain I had, Moses, or Paul says, I now count as loss. Why? Here's the reason Paul gives. He says, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, as trash, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own, but one that comes through faith in Christ. In his pursuit of Christ, Paul even says this. Listen to what he says. He says, I want to know Christ. I even want to share in his sufferings to become like him in his death. So in other words, he's choosing to identify with Christ in his sufferings, wanting that more than the pleasures of this world. And the reason why, the author of Hebrews says, is because those pleasures are fleeting. They're temporary. They don't last and they don't satisfy. They continue to leave you empty and without any sense of joy. So Moses, as the prince of Egypt, now wants to become a Hebrew slave. Paul, who is the persecutor of Christians, wants to suffer with the Christians because they both have found something in the suffering of God's people that brings them more pleasure than all the pleasures of this world. Because they both looked to a reward. Part of that reward is simply being able to enjoy a relationship with Christ, to know Christ. But then part of that reward also is seeing what is unseen, looking forward to that reward that nothing this world can compare to. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Every reward that we seek here on earth is temporary. It's fleeting. You can't hold on to it. Speaking of C.S. Lewis, he would use the example of a Christmas present. I think I may have used it before. I, I love this analogy that he said. As a kid, you would be so excited for Christmas. So excited to get that present and open up, and you would just be full of joy. For how long? You'd probably play with that toy maybe an hour. Two days later, you don't even know where the dumb toy is. A week or two later, your parents are getting rid of it, and they're not even telling you about it because they realize you're not playing with it anymore. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. No matter what you have ever put your hope in, put your sense of satisfaction in, it doesn't last. Listen to what David says, though. Psalm 16, 11. He says, in your presence, that's in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's something about being in relationship with Christ, there is a pleasure that's not fleeting compared to anything else this world has to offer. And, and that's, that's the difference. In Christ Jesus, David has found the pearl of great price. In Christ Jesus, Moses is willing to identify with slaves rather than to be a prince of Egypt. In Christ Jesus, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying this in prison. 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could someone possibly consider that gain, dying with Christ? Romans 8, 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy of comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us in Christ Jesus. There's something about believing the promises of God concerning the reward that is to come. When you really believe that, you're willing to forego everything that this world has to offer you. I remember when I first began to understand that concept. I was a freshman in college. I had made a profession of faith within a year of that when I was 17 years old. And I had just begun to read the Bible all the way through. And I remember reading again through Matthew chapter 16 when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I became very convicted by that verse, and I know many of you have as well. But I remember at the time I was a business major in college, and my room was plastered with all sorts of worldly things, and I still had not yet understood what it meant to identify with Christ. But I remember after reading that and meditating upon what that meant, I remember going over to my wall and taking off the wall a big poster, this huge poster that was on, you know, backed with cardboard and had been uh, plastered upon the wall. And the poster said this, all I want is world peace and dot, dot, dot. And then it had this picture of this multi-million dollar mansion, helicopter in the front lawn, all these sports cars and all, you know, this boat that's floating by in the water in front of it. So obviously I really didn't care about world peace. I think you're catching that, right? Um, my concept is I'm going to be a businessman and I'm just going to make lots of money and I'm going to be very, very happy. <laughs> and I remember when I began to understand something of what it means to identify with Christ, I remember taking that poster off the wall and I ripped it in four pieces and threw it in the trash can. And that was the beginning of my sense of call. What is the Lord going to do with my life? What does he want from me? And um, I remember, it was about a year later, that I was singing a song, uh, playing the guitar in front of uh, InterVarsity, one of the college ministries. And I remember uh, the song that I sang was, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And just singing that with gusto, with all my heart, that I don't care what the world has to offer me. I know it's temporary. I know it doesn't last. I know it doesn't satisfy me. There has to be something better than that, and I have found that in the promise of God in Christ. Now, we know that not everyone is living in a palace before they're called to follow Christ. I, I just think it's funny that after that, uh, since I've been in ministry, my wife can testify uh, that uh, my first house was above a funeral home, with dead people. And then I moved into a house that was infested with scorpions. And then I moved into a house that was flooded, and uh, we had to live in a, 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 the funny part was we lived in an apartment complex called the Mansions that, that was broken down in a thousand different ways. It's sort of like that. Have you seen that trailer park that's called Hawaiian Gardens here in Michigan? It's so laughable. There's four feet of snow in front of it, and they're calling it Hawaiian Gardens. It makes no sense whatsoever. That's what the world has to offer you fake Hawaiian gardens, just so you know. In the same way, you know, there have been, you know, people, you know, I've, I've had some really good times, had some really bad times as, as far as those things go, but all I know is I'd rather have Jesus. Now, I think what you'll see is that just because someone lives in a mansion doesn't mean that they're 
not following Christ, but it depends on why they're living there. Uh, think about it this way. Moses left the palace to become a slave. Joseph was a slave who was then raised up to live in a palace. In both cases, they lived where they lived in order to serve the Lord, to give him glory, to identify themselves with God's people, and both of them found that they had a greater treasure in Christ than anything this world had to offer. So again, faith is going to look different for each of us, but all I can say is that when you get to this final hymn that we're about to sing, I'd rather have Jesus, pay attention to the words, because ultimately that's my question to you, is can you sing that? Honestly, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. This is what it says in the first verse, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-scarred hands. And nail-pierced is what they say here. He says, then to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. No one can say that unless they really trust in Christ and trust his promises and know that salvation is a free gift that he gives to sinners who are not worthy of it. You're never going to try hard enough to get into his presence and to get into heaven. It always comes by faith in the Christ who has come to die for sinners. If you're a sinner, raise your hand if you're a sinner. <laughs> Christ came to save sinners. As Paul says, of who I am the chief, the worst. When you know that you're the worst and that Christ is the best, you want to live for Christ because Christ loves sinners. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us. We are foolish in many ways, and we go back and we waffle back and forth between the calling that you've placed upon our lives and, and the life that we have chosen for ourselves since the time that we were born. Lord, help us not to be influenced by the ways of the world and what the world wants. Lord, help us to know what the Word of God says and to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we read Your Word and let the Spirit of God convict us of its truth and of its righteousness and of the judgment to come. Lord, help us to choose along with Moses to identify ourselves with Christ and the people of God above all things. Lord, help us not to be afraid of men, but to fear the Lord the Lord of judgment, the Lord of holiness, the Lord of grace. And let us live in such a way that would bring glory to your name, glory to your church, and a faithful, enduring testimony to the world around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Won't you stand?